Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good people from around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. The only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is episode number 323, and in today's episode, in segment number one, we're going to look a little deeper into the man, Kenneth Gove. We've been covering the case of Keao Gove's murder for five months now. And up until two weeks ago, we knew very little about Kiao's husband, Ken. Now, the last two episodes where we broke down the interview with psychic John Catchings, while it may have not have been the greatest insight into psychics, it was certainly a good look into Kenneth Gove. We got to read or hear how Ken sounds in his own words, rather than just reading what's in a police report. And as I've spent the last two weeks filtering through all 500 pages that were sent to me by the Dallas Police Department in my open records request, I'm finding there's a lot more about Kenneth Gove that we didn't know before. And also, a listener who asked to remain anonymous was able to find access to some newspaper articles that shed even more light on Ken. So that's where we're going to start today's episode, is with a deeper look into Ken Gove. And in segment two, we're going to move into Ken's interactions with his neighbor, also Ronnie Blackwell's girlfriend's mother, Rosie Simons. We have found a lot of information in this police file that was not in the district attorney's file. We're going to start the show off today by telling you about a brand new sponsor, and then we'll get right into segment one. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Chatbooks. I know for a fact that every single one of you listening are busy people. All of us are trying to do our jobs, raise our kids, try to carve out some time out of our day or our week or even our month for our spouses. In today's society, we all live a life of go, go, go. There's a ton of great things to be said about all the new technology that we have today. But there's one thing that's gone away that I personally really miss, and that's actual printed photos. You kind of forget about them, but every once in a while, we'll go over to my parents' house for the weekend, and Becky and I and the kids will whip out old photo albums and flip through printed pictures all the way from our childhood, family vacations, and it's so different doing that as opposed to going through Facebook or Instagram and trying to scroll back so many years. It's all right there in a book. Well, Chatbooks now gives us a hassle-free way to still share our lives on social media and have printed photo albums at our house to share for years and years and years. So this is how it works. 
Chatbooks automatically creates photo books from your Instagram, Facebook, or your camera roll on your phone. It's really simple. Once you sign up, every time you post 60 pictures to whichever medium you select, whether it be Facebook, Instagram, or just your camera roll, every time you take 60 photos, Chatbooks automatically creates a photo album and ships it out to you. And shipping's free in the United States. There's one photo on every page, and those 60-page photo albums are just 8 bucks. So that's $8 in free shipping, and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to take time out of your day. You don't have to build the albums. Chatbooks does it all for you. And in your photo albums, all of your captions, dates, and locations are all included. They're available in soft cover or hard cover. There's no formatting, one picture per page. It's simple but classic. Custom books are available in a 6x6 or an 8x8 size. You'll love it or you'll get your money back. And I'm telling you, you're going to love it. I signed up for chat books. I've already got my first couple of books. And it's amazing. I don't have to do anything. And I actually have photo albums to put on the shelf that years from now my grandkids can come back and look through. Because I'll tell you what they're not going to do. They're not going to go to my Facebook page and look back from 20 years ago to see which photos I posted. Think about that. Our memories are stored forever online. But will anybody really ever have the opportunity to go back and look at them? And that's why Chatbooks is such a great idea. And right now, if you sign up with Chatbooks, you can get your first series book free by using promo code TRUTH. So it's that simple. Go to chatbooks.com and use my promo code TRUTH to get your first series book for free. That's chatbooks.com. Prior to episode 321, all of us had our own mental images of who Kenneth Gove was. I'm sure none of our images were the same, but we certainly had all established in our minds what we thought he looked like, what we thought his personality was, and even how he spoke. Well, the last two episodes has certainly challenged in my own mind who I thought Ken Gove was. But over the last two weeks, I've been doing quite a bit of research on Ken. Some newspaper articles that were sent to me caused me to do some research online. There were even some discussions on the fan page from a couple of fans that were doing the same research that I was doing. And we definitely learn a little bit more about Ken. So I want to start off right now reading you an article from the Dallas Morning News dated December 28, 1996. The article is titled, Faith in the Face of Death. Now this would be just about a year after Jesse's trial, after Jesse was convicted and sentenced to life. The article breaks down a couple of different people who have had struggles with their faith. One of the people highlighted was our own Kenneth Gove. And what we find from this article again, we hear from Ken in his own words, is that Ken Gove was a deeply troubled man. A troubled man who found solace in his wife, Kiao, which explains why he was so devastated and never, ever got over her death. The article reads as follows. On the day his wife of 20 years was stabbed to death while taking her morning walk, Ken Gove didn't believe in anything, religiously speaking. He had faith in only two things, One of them was fate. He feared it. He fought six years in Vietnam in a special unit connected to the CIA. Quote, Our job was to neutralize Viet Cong, and everyone knows what neutralize means. End quote. So here we are, just two sentences into the article, and that definitely caught my attention. Up to this point, we've never known what Ken Gove did in Vietnam. I assumed he was a soldier fighting in the military, but then at trial he describes himself as having worked for the State Department. I never really paid it much attention until reading this article. So as I started looking into Ken Gove, a few other listeners were as well. Uh, Jill Gillis and Gary Yam had both come across the same online book or article that I had that actually has pictures of Kenneth Gove from Vietnam. 
In Vietnam, Kenneth Gove was the MAT I-62 team leader. Now, MAT stands for Mobile Advisor Team. And based on the research I've done, these are civilians, mostly ex-military, although I don't see any records that Kenneth actually was ever in the military, that would go into South Vietnam, help drive the enemy out of villages, and then work with the locals to teach them how to defend themselves and rebuild their country. Now, in the article, and we'll post a few of these pictures on the website, one of the pictures you see Ken wearing some black pants, a bright red flowered shirt, with a beard down to his chest, drinking a beer with a submachine gun strapped over his shoulder. The caption says that Kenneth was given the gun by a spook, which is a term used for CIA spies. According to this article, the men in the unit referred to Ken Gove, their team leader, as, quote, the bearded one. So at this point, that's all the background we have on Ken as far as what he was doing in Vietnam. And again, I'll reread this sentence from the article. He'd fought six years in Vietnam in a special unit connected to the CIA. Quote, our job was to neutralize Viet Cong, and everyone knows what neutralize means, he says. Going on with the article, in the back of his mind, he always thought that perhaps fate would punish him for participating in the killings. When he got cancer 10 years ago and doctors had to cut out a lot of his body, he thought, oh good, maybe this will be the payback. That same year, when he fell into a deep depression diagnosed as manic depressive illness, he again thought, this is it, this is the payback, maybe it will be enough. Now, as a side note here, this answers a question that I've had for a long time. In one of the police reports, there's a random note where one of Kiao's friends had told police that three years before the murder, Kenneth Gove had had a nervous breakdown. Well, this article says 10 years prior is when Ken got cancer. The article's 98, so that would put it at 88, which would put it three years before Kiao's death. Kenneth here says it was that same year when he fell into the deep depression. It was diagnosed as manic depressive. So that answers that question, what was the nervous breakdown three years before Kiao's death? Kenneth was diagnosed as a manic depressive and was in a deep depression after having cancer and having part of his body removed. Moving on with the article, and then his 51-year-old wife, Kia, was murdered by a man who didn't know her, had nothing against her, just saw her as she walked around the schoolyard and decided to kill her. Then Mr. Goh began to fear that fate would take another member of his family, his teenage son. So he turned to the second thing he had faith in, the goodness of his wife. As the years since her death in 1991 have gone by, it's her faith that has sustained him. It helped him through the three and a half years when her killer couldn't be found. And through the trial last January, that resulted in a Dallas man being sentenced to prison for life. Kiao Gove's faith kept assuring him that this life is not all there is. Mrs. Gove, a native of Thailand, kept two Buddhist shrines in the living room, one for the family and one for the house. She kept flowers on little platforms, and every morning she put water and a little food on the altars. Sometimes Mr. Gove would hear her mumbling as she placed the offerings. He asked her one time what she was saying, and she answered that she was asking that the family have good fortune and that they always treat other people well. He went to the Watt, a monastic center, with her on various occasions. But in all their years together, Mrs. Gove talked with him at length about Buddhism only a few times. He knew the power of what she believed chiefly because of the way she lived her life. Quote, she was the best person I've ever known, says her husband, who called her by her Thai nickname, Jit, which means flower. She believed that it didn't matter how much money you had or how much power you had, all that mattered was that you lived so that the world was a little better because you were there. When she would start a new job, people would often treat her badly, because she was new and different, he says. It would really hurt her, but she would just be nicer to them. 
At a memorial service at the Buddhist Center of Dallas, a Buddhist doctor approached Mr. Gove and assured him that Mrs. Gove was living in a better life now because of the good person that she had been. Then the doctor addressed Mr. Gove's need for vengeance. It was a subject the grieving husband had been thinking a lot about. Mr. Gove had offered a $10,000 reward for his wife's killer. He posted hundreds of flyers asking for information, and he bolted signs on his car asking, quote, who killed Kiao Gove? Mr. Gove was living for only two reasons. To get his son Kirby through college, and to find his wife's killer. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The doctor told the bereaved husband that he didn't need to worry about punishing his wife's murderer. Don't worry about it. Don't agonize about revenge. If the murderer doesn't pay for what he did in this life, he will pay in the next one, the doctor said. Nobody gets away with anything. The words didn't slake Mr. Gove's desire for retribution, but they did help his sense of hopelessness. Mr. Gove was in so much pain those first years that he thought about killing himself. One of the reasons I didn't is that she believed it was wrong to kill yourself. She thought the cycle had to be completed, he says. I was afraid that if I killed myself, it might keep me from being with her. Mr. Gove now reads books on Buddhisms and reincarnation. He keeps shrines just as his wife did. He addresses the Buddhists every morning and every evening. He doesn't visit the temple much anymore because the memories there are just too painful. He thinks a lot about what his wife's faith meant in the context of her life. It gave her a peace about whatever life held, he says. Her impoverished parents had forced her into servitude when she was just a girl in rural Thailand. Her employer raped her and she bore two of his children before escaping to the city. And as a side note here, this may be an answer to one of the questions a lot of you have had, which is who is Tong? Because in Kenneth Gove's obituary, it says that he had an adopted son named Tong who was still in Thailand. Moving on with the article, she left the children with her parents and came to the United States after marrying Mr. Gove. She supported her parents all her life, sending them money throughout her marriage. Quote, she always said they had only been following the customs of the time, he says. Her faith also may have helped prepare her for her death, Mr. Gove said. He and Kirby both noticed that in the weeks before her death, she had been especially affectionate towards them. Also, while she never mentioned any foreboding, she began carrying a knife with her on her walks and talked with Mr. Gove about getting a gun. Now, let's break off for a side note here, too. I'm not sure what's going on here with Ken. Now, remember, this is seven years after Kiao's death. It's after the trial. And he's telling this reporter that not only was Kiao carrying a knife, but she had asked about getting a gun. I really don't know what to make of this at this point. Because in all the police reports that we had before, and most definitely Kenneth Gove's trial testimony, he indicated that he never had any idea there was any threat. 
He mentioned a couple of things that she was nervous about, but said that he had no idea she was carrying the knife, and he certainly never mentioned anything about a gun. So I'm curious here if the gun had slipped his mind back then, or if he intentionally didn't mention the gun to the police, or if he's confusing some memories here all these years later. I'm not sure what the answer is. Moving on with the article, there was another odd thing. For years, she had said she would keep two beliefs until her deathbed. One was that his small-town New Hampshire family would never fully accept her. The other was that he had once been unfaithful to her, which he says was not true. But not long before she died, she told him that she had changed her mind about both matters. Quote, I believe your family finally does accept me, she said, and I don't believe you cheated on me. For whatever reason, Mr. Goh believes she was trying to tie up some loose ends in her life. Those actions may be mere coincidence, but they may also be an indication of another reality. The one Mrs. Gove lived her life by does exist, he says. Mr. Gove, who was 59 and retired, lives with two little white dogs his wife had adopted. The living room and the kitchen show off dozens of her photos. He once asked her why she took so many pictures, and she replied, So you'll be able to remember me when I'm gone. He laughed at that and said, I'll die before you do. She answered, You never know what life will bring. He has often felt her presence in the years since her death. In the months after she died, it was especially strong in her sewing room, where she spent many hours making clothes. Once, however, he not only felt her presence, he saw her again. It was four years after her death. Mr. Govan Kirby, who was away at college, were having a serious disagreement. One night, sitting on the couch, the widower was pondering what to do. He looked up, and there in the chair before him was his wife. She wore a blue short set that he recognized as one she often wore and had made herself. He could smell her perfume. She was swiveling in the chair back and forth and tapped him on the leg with her foot as she used to do. Quote, I can't remember what she said, but I remember that we talked about what was going on with Kirby. She basically advised me to hold back, he said. That was the right advice, of course. That was the only time he ever saw her, but Mr. Gove often feels she's with him. He's so certain of it that he feels as married as he ever did. Quote, In every sense but physical, he says, I feel she's still with me. That article, while a lot of you may find that a bit strange, does give us a little bit more insight into the man Kenneth Gove was, which is important to this investigation because it speaks to Kiao's victimology. Ken Gove was a man who had demons. He wasn't a religious man, but he believed in fate. None of us can know with any certainty exactly what Ken Gove did in Vietnam, but he certainly felt that karma was waiting to come back and get him. After reading this, I believe that Ken blamed himself for Kiao's death, but at the same time finding peace in the fact that Kiao, because of her faith, was prepared to go. After her death, Kenneth certainly never got over Kiao's loss, and it's up to you and your own beliefs to determine whether or not Kenneth actually saw Kiao sitting next to him and had a conversation with her. I don't think that's for any of us to judge or decide on. But based on this and what everyone has told me that has ever met Kenneth and has been around him after her death and before, I believe that Ken Gove was a man that was desperately in love with his wife and remained in love with his wife until the day he died. And what we definitely know based on all of the reports we have is that he was relentless in his pursuit for finding her killer. He even went so far as to write a letter to the mayor of the city of Dallas. In our new open records request from Dallas PD, 
we have a letter written to Ken from the mayor, Steve Bartlett. Unfortunately, we don't have the letter he wrote to Bartlett, but this is the response dated December 21st, 1992, so about a year and a half after the murder. Dear Mr. Gove, I am in receipt of your recent letter and would like to offer my deepest personal sympathy for the tragic loss of your wife. Additionally, I want to assure you that all members of the Dallas community are valued equally. We remain committed to providing a maximum effort in response to all brutal crimes such as the one perpetrated against your wife. After communication with the police department officials responsible for this investigation, I find that they share your frustration and in their inability to bring those responsible to justice. They have assured me that they will continue an aggressive investigation and pursue all leads available. I have ordered a copy of your correspondence to the police department and remain available to you if I can be of further assistance. Sincerely, Steve Bartlett, Mayor. Clearly, Kenneth Gove was not giving up, even a year and a half later. There's a photocopy of another article contained in the police file showing Kenneth driving around in his car with a sign that he had literally bolted to the door offering the reward and looking for information about Kiao's killer. Throughout this open records request, we're finding little tiny details that are helping to paint a clearer picture for us. For example, let's talk for a moment about Kiao's knife. Now remember, from trial, we know that Kenneth had stated that the knife that was found in Kiao's hand was the one from their kitchen, that he recognized it and there was one missing. But what we've never known is exactly how that information came to pass. Well, here I have a report from Detective Watts dated July 30th, 1993. So this is two years after the murder. This report reads as follows. Re-interviewed Ken Gove at his work. I questioned him about his meeting with John Catchings, where he had talked about the missing kitchen knife and Gove's conversation with some school custodians. Gove said that the complainant had the knife in her workroom. He had observed the knife several days before the offense and questioned her about the knife. She told him that she was using it and he assumed for sewing, etc. He identified the photograph of the knife found at the scene as the knife that his wife had. Now what's interesting about that is this is the first record we have where Ken actually identified the knife. And it's two years after the offense. So it wasn't like that day they showed him a picture and he went and looked in his kitchen drawer. It was two years later he was shown the picture of the knife. And that's when he identified it as one missing from their house. Gove said that he had spoken with custodians of the school and they told him that they had observed the complainant walking around the school that day but had not seen anything. Gove said that about two weeks before the complainant's death, she had told him that someone had been in the wooded area northeast of the school grounds, that would be that patch of woods north of Grady Lane, east of Apache, the area that we have identified as a likely location where the attack would have began. Gove told her that it could have been a dog and she responded that it was a person, not a dog. Gove also was told by the complainant that approximately six months before this offense, a little white man waved at her, and a couple of days afterwards, he drove by again and asked her if she wanted a ride. She refused, and he drove along slow for a short time and then drove off. So from this report, we find out that Ken didn't identify the knife as theirs until two years after the offense, and we did already have some basic details about someone harassing her from those woods, And we had heard about a white Cadillac, but I wonder if that's the same story that he's telling here about a little white man waving to her and asking her for a ride. I believe that's pretty close to the same narrative that he had described earlier about the white Cadillac. Now let's jump ahead a month to August 21st. Recontacted Ken Gove at his residence. I again questioned him on several things. First about the complainant hearing someone in the wooded area. This occurred less than a month before the offense. The complainant told him that someone was hiding in the woods, and when she asked who was there, the movement stopped. She became scared and ran home, hurting her ankle. 
Second, about the knife. Gove first became aware of the knife less than a month before the offense. He did not realize that the complainant had been carrying it, only that she was using it in her sewing room. Third, the type of clothing the complainant was wearing. The complainant always wore the jogging outfits when she walked alone because of her husband's warnings. In the evening, she would sometimes wear shorts, but only when her husband was with her. The girdle was worn all the time. Now that part of the report we've heard before, but this part I've never seen before. Gove did say that he spoke with an unknown Latin male who was living on Mark Street. Now remember, Mark Street is the street parallel to September. That's where Danny Stanbury's house was, with the backyard backing up to September. But Gove said that he spoke with an unknown Latin male who was living on Mark Street who told him that he had seen a white van parked on September Street the morning of the murder. The van drove off before the police arrived. The Latin male has moved since. His identity or whereabouts are unknown. With every single report we find that we didn't have before, we're filling in more pieces of the puzzle. After a quick break for our sponsors, we're going to break down several reports that we got in our new open records request regarding Rosie Simons, Ronnie Blackwell, and Ken Gove's interactions that were not included in the district attorney's file. Right after the break. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, while we're on the topic of Rosie Simons, we had a summary report before that says that at about 1215 that Rosie Simon reported the strange acting black male walking around the neighborhood. But in this report, we have the actual narrative that was typed out that day. And there's a subtle difference here. It says, at 12.15 p.m. on the date of Mrs. Gove's death, I received a phone call from Miss Rosie Simons, a neighbor. She informed me a black male who usually wears a black t-shirt and black shorts and or sweatpants and who appears to be psychologically unbalanced, walks or jogs in the same area where Mrs. Gove walks between the hours of 7 a.m. and 8 a.m. He resides in the neighborhood. This gentleman is always observed talking to himself and sometimes verbally abuses the women who walk and jog around Spruce High School. Now here's the subtle difference. Rosie Simons never actually said that she saw the strange acting black male that day. The exact verbiage in this report says, a black male who usually wears a black t-shirt and black shorts and or sweatpants and who appears to be psychologically unbalanced walks or jogs in the same area between the hours of 7 and 8. She did not say she saw him that morning. She said that he typically does. That's it. So that is a difference from what we thought we knew before. Then here's a report from January 21st, 1993 that I believe we had a version of before, but it makes a lot more sense now. 
made by Royster, and it says, on listed date and time, I went to 9711 Grady Street and spoke with Miss Rosie Simons, a neighbor of Mr. Gove. She stated that Mama Judy did change her story as Mr. Gove stated. Mr. Gove will be contacted advising him of this interview. Now, this is something we may have just read past before, or to be honest, I've gone through so many documents, I'm not sure if we'd seen this one before or if I just read it last week. But the interesting part here is that when Rosie says that Mr. Gove said that Judy changed her story, what we know now is that what he means is she changed her story from what she said to him as opposed to what she said to police. Now, in August of 93, Watts goes back to talk to Rosie Simons. This is a report we have never seen before. Contacted Rosie Simons at her residence. She is the first person known at this time that Judy Gonzalez contacted about seeing the suspects dragging the complainant from a car. Note there that he says, from a car, not to a car. Rosie said that she knows Gonzalez by way of Gonzalez's son, who would come over and visit with her daughter. Rosie described Ronnie as strange. She said one time you would see him with orange hair, and the next time part of his head would be shaved. Rosie said that Ronnie's full name is Ronnie Blackwell who should be about 18 or 19 years old at this time. Rosie said that Gonzalez told her that she and her nephew were hunting for Ronnie because he had ran off again. About 2 or 3 a.m., they drove by Spruce High School, and she observed a brown or tan car sitting along the curb. There were three black males and one Latin male inside the car. Gonzalez told that she returned to the school again and observed the three black males and one Latin male dragging the complainant from the direction of the tan car. Rosie said that Gonzalez repeated the same story to Mr. Gove. I asked Rosie why she thought Gonzalez waited so long before telling her story. The only reason Rosie gave was that Gonzalez is having to move at the time because the police were always looking for Ronnie. Plus, the police were not the kind of people Gonzalez or Ronnie enjoyed speaking to. So what's happening here is Rosie is recounting to Watts what Judy told her and what she heard Judy tell Ken, which is in direct conflict with what she told Royster in her affidavit. Now there's three black males and one Latin male. The car is brown or tan. And she witnessed them pulling Kiao from the direction of the car. Not towards the car, not into the car. She also says that she saw the car first at 2 or 3 a.m. and then had circled back around later in the morning, and that's when she saw the attack. Rosie said that a friend of her daughter's told the daughter that Ronnie had said that he knew one of the suspects. I questioned the daughter, who seemed reluctant to talk about Blackwell, even though she's been married for two years. She stated she never told her money about Ronnie having knowledge of the murder. She did later admit that she had heard a rumor about Ronnie knowing one of the suspects. She said that Ronnie is now staying in some pink apartment on Syene Road. She seemed defensive about Ronnie, saying that he would not hurt a fly, but she was more than ready to talk about the strange black male roaming the area at the time of the murder. Rosie and her daughter identified the photograph of Kenneth Ray Williams as the black male that they are talking about. Rosie said that the black male would walk around the school holding onto the wire fence. The black male would also talk to make-believe persons. Rosie said that the black male would jump out of the wooded area from other hiding places and scare women. He would also become aggressive when confronted. Rosie said that the black male followed a 14-year-old girl home and would not leave until the girl's father ran him off. It is unknown who these people are or where they live. Rosie said that the last time she had seen the black male was shortly after the woman had her throat cut while inside her house. Rosie also said that she had heard that the woman named Smith, who was the parking lot attendant for Spruce, 
felt like the suspect was a Latin male who was running with blacks and was always getting the blacks into trouble. At this point, we have a lot of unanswered questions. We're definitely getting more information, and Mama Judy and Jesse James Wendell's statements at this point are starting to seem a little less credible. But a big question right now is, why were all of these police reports, literally anything connecting Mama Judy to Rosie Simons to Ken Gove, why were they all removed from the DA's file? Or at least why were they not given to me when I requested the full copy of the DA's file? Certainly none of these things were ever mentioned at trial. It seems to me that there had to be a reason why certain police reports were selected to be removed from the file. They all seem to have the same theme, except one. When filtering through all the documents in the Dallas Police Department's open record request, I came across one that could change the course of Jesse Eldridge's life. Jesse Eldridge was arrested on October 27, 1994. He stayed in jail the entire time from 94 until 96 when his trial began. While Jesse was sitting in jail awaiting his trial, while the prosecution had the legal obligation based on the Brady v. Maryland standard to turn over any and all exculpatory information to the defense, there was a call made to Crime Stoppers. The call was made on the four-year anniversary of Kiao's death on July 25, 1995. That's nearly a year after Jesse was arrested and about six months before his trial. The Crime Stoppers tip reads as follows. On July 25, 1995, at about 4 p.m., an informant reports that the suspect, Kenneth Ray Williams, a.k.a. Pete, is responsible for the murder of the pastry cook, at Spruce High School in the summer of 1991. The informant did not observe the murder and was very unclear how the informant came by the information. The informant stated that the suspect has molested several members of his family. The informant was not able to articulate how this related to the death of the above-listed complainant. The suspect is reported to live at, and it gives the address. This Crime Stoppers tip is clearly material and exculpatory. Now, the lead may not lead to anything, but what we know for certain is that a year after any Crime Stoppers tip was still up and available, when the supposed killer had been caught, there was no more advertising for a reward for Kiao's killer. On the anniversary of her death, someone called the Dallas Police Department to tell them that they had information that Kenneth Ray Williams is actually the killer. After reading this Crime Stoppers tip, of course I immediately contacted Jesse's attorney, Allison Clayton. Now, I don't have access to all of Allison's files. She has a direct link to the DA's office, and there's confidentiality issues there, so I can't see the files she has. But I asked her if she'd ever seen this one. After she took a minute to go through her files, we were both stunned to find out that this file, this Crime Stoppers tip, this piece of material exculpatory evidence, is not in the DA's file. And under the Brady versus Maryland standard, withholding of any material exculpatory evidence from the defense by any government agency, not just the DA's office, but also the police department, whether there's intent to do harm or not, is in fact a Brady violation. And a Brady violation very well could mean Jesse Eldridge's conviction being thrown out. 
Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com. I thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And thank you to our transcriptionists, Sarah Hoyt, Sarah Mueller, and Desiree Dunn. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.